Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Caitlin Welsh, Director of the CSIS Global Food and Water Security Program. And I'm sitting in today for Dan Rundy, CSIS Senior Vice President and Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development. My guests today are Dr. Antonio Tatarani, Chief Medical Officer of PepsiCo and Senior Vice President of PepsiCo's Life Sciences Strategy. Dr. Tatarani has been with PepsiCo for nearly six years, and he oversees the company's efforts to protect its workforce, products, and communities from COVID-19. He's an award-winning expert on obesity, diabetes, and their cardiometabolic complications. And Dr. Marianne O'Shea is Vice President of Global Nutrition Science at PepsiCo. Dr. O'Shea has been with PepsiCo for over 13 years. She is leading a team of experts to guide the nutrition strategy fueling PepsiCo's innovation pipeline and portfolio transformation journey. She's an expert on functional nutrient interventions and has published widely and received numerous patents. Antonio and Marianne, welcome. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having us, Caitlin. So the focus of our conversation today is the work of PepsiCo Foundation and PepsiCo to address malnutrition, focusing on two specific interventions, and then we'll take a step back and look broadly across the foundation and across the company. But the two interventions that we really want to focus on are one called Quaker Cres and one called Quaker Bowl of Growth. They've both been implemented recently in Mexico, Guatemala, and India. We'll start with the first one. And Marianne, I'd like to ask you, can you give our listeners a breakdown of this Quaker Cres intervention, when it began, who it supports, what outcomes you're observing? Happy to, Caitlin. So Quaker Cres is a very unique program made possible thanks to an alliance that we have with our Quaker business and local NGOs in certain regions in South America. It operates by offering a comprehensive intervention using a clinically proven model to overcome mild and malnourishment in young children aged between two and five years old. The intent of the program is really to contribute to solving a very serious problem of childhood malnutrition and raise awareness in caregivers to work together for a better future. And obviously an intervention established early in life can really change the trajectory for individuals, whether it's, of course, their growth pattern, but also the related cognitive potential that can ensure success with the foundation in school and so on. So Quaker is a brand that firmly believes that circumstances should never be a barrier to good nutrition. And it has a track record in the region of delivering nutritious products. And so using that legacy, Quaker tackled this problem by developing a very unique product designed specifically for this population of, of young children. Um, to provide sufficient energy and nutrients. And the program began in Mexico 10 years ago now with a local NGO partner, Unquilo de Adido. They have the field experience and access to the community to help us really make our nutrition solution accessible and, and to support the intervention. So the program identifies mildly 
to moderate malnourished children, as I said, ages two to five, enrolls them for a year intervention for a period of time where they have a monitored process of intervention and an educational component for caregivers that support the children during this time. And the tools contribute, of course, to a very comprehensive recovery for the child. And the product is provided monthly to participants that are enrolled in the program, and they have routine assessments for weight and height. And as I mentioned, there's a complementary education program that supports this. After the year is complete, then kids go on for a one-year monitoring. Okay. Thank you. So you've described some of the pillars of this model. It's a three-pillar model. There's product distribution, there are partnerships, and you mentioned the partnerships the PepsiCo Foundation enters into to implement this program. And also there's a family training component. Let's talk a little bit more about the product distribution. What is the product that you are distributing? Yeah, the product is a ready-to-eat supplementary food. As you know, we already produce a lot of oat-based food products with the Quaker business in Mexico and other countries in South America. So using our expertise in that area, we really looked at the diet of the local community to understand what were the more commonly consumed foods. And there were two options in the, say, top 10 consumed foods that we had capability to produce. One was a tole, it's like a powdered grain-based product that you reconstitute to a beverage, and the other was a cookie biscuit format. We chose in the end to go with the cookie format to avoid having any requirement for drinkable water to reconstitute, etc. It also had the opportunity to allow us for expanded shelf life, which is important when you're trying to access communities that may be hard to reach. And it was a format that also allowed us to maintain stability. This is a product that has high energy, a component provided by oats, uh, nuts, in addition to healthy fats and about 18 nutrients, vitamins and minerals at varying levels within the product. And we were also able to take advantage of our expertise in this area. We happen to have a baking center of excellence for our global R&D community based right there. You said a baking center of excellence? Baking center of excellence, correct. Yeah. So we were able to leverage our expertise to develop a format that was also consistent with the diet. It meant that subjects wouldn't have to change their habits. They were able to incorporate this as a supplement to their existing diet. That's important. This was not in any way a replacement of the diet. It was meant to enhance the existing diet. Thank you. And just as a reminder for our listeners, so this cookie is a form of RUSF, which is a ready-to-use supplementary food, which is different from RUTF, which is a ready-to-use therapeutic food. RUSF is used to treat moderate acute malnutrition, and RUTF is used to treat severe acute malnutrition. So thank you for reminding us that this is a supplementary food, not meant to replace anything else. Can you describe the dosage of this RUSF? Yeah, there's one cookie provided per day for a defined period of time. And that cookie would have 250 calories as an example. And as I mentioned, has the complement of vitamins and minerals required to effectively support growth and development of individuals in addition to their diet. Thank you. And can you talk a little bit more about another pillar of this program, which is the family training aspect? 
Yeah, so it is really important for a number of reasons um, to ensure compliance, to monitor children that they're appropriately benefiting from the program. And we rely strongly on our NGO partners to help. They have trained staff experienced in delivering educational programs to the caregivers. So there is a program which provides 20-minute sessions on a monthly basis, education sessions for mothers, caregivers, on many topics, things such as healthy pregnancy, breastfeeding, weaning, early stimulation, healthy eating. And in addition to that 20-minute session, there's some take-home resources that families get to reinforce the learning, storybooks, recipes, for example, which also provide opportunities to incorporate the cookies in different ways into the child's diet. So it relieves boredom of having the same product every day. So that's a really comprehensive approach than just providing the cookie in the hope that when the child completes the intervention, of course, then there's a lot of supporting knowledge in the families to continue good nutrition and and best health practices. Certainly. And tell us, what are the results you've observed from these interventions? Yeah, so far we have conducted two clinical studies actually to establish the efficacy of the supplement early on. And the intent of those studies was really to measure the prevention of moderate acute malnutrition, that's the progression in these mild to moderately malnourished children, and in addition to look at the recovery from mild and moderate nutrition. And in both of those studies, 100% of the children demonstrated that prevention to acute malnutrition was achieved. So we were successful in showing that the progression of malnutrition did not continue. And then 82% of the children achieved a normal weight. So that was very reassuring as we embarked on, on these intervention programs. And in addition, we've seen that when children recover from nutrition, it's due to an adherence of about 60% to the intervention. So even when they're not completely compliant, there is a very significant impact of the program. Thank you. And then we were looking at the results of the clinical study of the effectiveness of this intervention, and it seems like relapse is a possibility and that relapse has been observed. And is that after the one-year course of treatment? Is that the case? Yeah, there definitely it's a possibility. I mean, that's why our NGO partners monitor the children for post one year to ensure that good optimal growth and nutrition status that they've achieved in the intervention can be maintained and relapse can be caught early if that's the case so that further intervention can happen. So that's how you lessen the possibility of relapses through the partnerships with, okay. Okay. Thank you. Plans for the future. You've been implementing this program in Guatemala and Mexico. Do you plan to continue there? Do you plan to expand elsewhere? Yeah, it is very successful in terms of that's why we expanded to Guatemala, of course. I think this year we will have something like 7,000 children in the program. And we expect that we will have about 17,000 completed the program by the end of 2023. Across both countries? Yes, across both countries. So absolutely, we hope to expand. We're looking at other areas in both countries that have vulnerable populations. And we're looking more broadly in the Latin America region. And of course, as you may have 
alluded to already, we have expanded in other countries with the start it made in India this year. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Marianne. That's a perfect segue to the second part of our conversation. Antonio, thank you for joining us. And we'll be talking with you about Quaker Bowl of Growth, which is a separate intervention. Its development was informed by lessons from the Quaker Cresce program. It was launched just within the past year. So it was launched in April 2023. Can you explain to us the difference between these two programs and then give an introduction to the Quaker Bowl of Growth program? Yeah, again, thank you for having us, Caitlin, on this podcast. I would say more similarities than differences, really. So let me try to cover that. First of all, you asked already a couple of questions on how we move in the world in which we operate from a country to another. And I wanted to tell you that we have a group of epidemiologists within our group that has guided us by creating a map within the countries in which we operate. We are a large corporation that operates in 200 countries around the world. What are the main needs of the communities that we serve? And as far as malnutrition is concerned, our focus has extended from South America to Southeast Asia. And within Southeast Asia, as you and your listeners probably know, India is a hotspot, unfortunately, for malnutrition. India contributes a large share of the global burden of malnutrition, I think close to a third, and especially for kids below the age of five. So that is the explanation why we have extended the program in that direction geographically under the name of Quaker Bowl of Growth. And again, I won't repeat everything that Marianne has already so beautifully illustrated, but again, a program based on uh, three main pillars of nutrition, awareness, and education. The tagline under which we operate in India is right nutrition leads to bright future. And that's the theme that we have used to sensitize the community. And I was there, as you mentioned, in April. And I have to say this type of intervention with this format was very, very, very well received. We had a reception with over a thousand people, including the family and the kids that would participate to the program very enthusiastically taking place of that opening ceremony. The differences, we had obviously the type of intervention, the cookie format doesn't work very well in the dietary habits of Indian population in general, kids in particular. So we have had to adapt our solution to the local dietary patterns and nutritional need. And so we have come up with a solution uh, which is called the panjiri, which is something that can be prepared at home based on a pre-formulated whole grain uh, recipe. And we have, and I'm going to pass it to Marianne to elaborate a little bit on how we executed that, again, based on the great R&D knowledge on the ground. And we also capitalized on the fact that in India, there is a growing interest in a local grain, which is called the millet. And actually, 2023 was named the International Year Millet. So millet is part of the formulation of the Panjiri. But to give you a little bit more details on how we have set the program in Pune, Maharashtra to start with, which is one of the communities we work more closely with, I'm going to pass it back to Marianne to give you a sense of what the program is all about. Thank you. Thanks for that, Antonio. And Marianne, if you could also explain for our listeners what the exact product is again. So Antonio gave us a good introduction, but explain what the product is and how that differs from the cookie that you're using in, in Mexico and Guatemala. 
Yeah, so the the learning, as Antonio mentioned, was to really leverage a local format that was relevant to the local diet and also fits, of course, within our capability as an organization to produce. So the cookie definitely was not going to be a fit for many reasons. And and also as a vegetarian, largely vegetarian population, egg sources in, in an intervention would have been a challenge. So we couldn't kind of just lift and adapt our version of the product that's in Latin America. Panjiri, which is a very local recipe, it's, I think if you translate it in US context, it's like a porridge. Essentially, it's a grain-based, multi-grain product. Like a cream of wheat or oatmeal or something like that. Of course, with the unique Indian flavors and ingredients and the taste palette that they are familiar with. And as Antonio mentioned, in addition to oats, we really were able to lean into incorporating millets. It has a very rich local heritage, that grain. It's widely recognized, acknowledged. And as Antonio mentioned, 2023 being this focus is the International Year of the Millets, the government in India, we're really trying to propose a greater emphasis on millet incorporation, whether it was in industrially produced foods and home cooking, etc., so that the population could really leverage the nutrition benefits. And of course, it's a locally produced grain, which is really, from a sustainability point of view, it made a great deal of sense for us to incorporate it into the formula, which is also enriched with 18 vitamins and minerals, very similar to our product in Latin America. The intervention is provided again daily, the children the same age, so three to five years of age. And as just as Antonio mentioned, they're in a state which is a very high prevalence of vulnerability as it comes to food security. So we also partner very similar to Latin America with local NGOs that help ensure that the interventions are provided in the community-based setting and then that the individuals are tracked through the appropriate evaluations for weight, height, etc., throughout the process of the intervention and then with post-intervention checks to ensure that we monitor the recovery. So in that instance, very similar to the model in LATAM, but a very different product format that's consistent with the diet and consistent with our capability in the country. I see. Thank you. And we're coming up on the one-year mark for implementation of this program. So no results to speak of yet, but you will have those soon, I expect. And you've described the same model, including a product and partnership and family education to increase the efficacy of the intervention. Yeah. We have approximately a thousand kids enrolled in the program initially, and we are encouraged by some preliminary results that we have seen at a midpoint analysis of the data that are coming in. I'm going to go back in March and celebrate the one-year anniversary, at which point we should be able to see the initial set of efficacy data of this intervention. It's important to do so because then that will guide us into the decision of further expanding the program, both in Pune, but potentially in other states in which we operate in India, again, close to the community of people that work with us, and potentially other countries in Southeast Asia, all of which will, depending on the understanding that we can operate a successful intervention in that part of the world as we have done in South America. Okay. Well, thank you. And it would be wonderful to speak with you after this visit to hear about the results that you've observed. So we look forward to hearing from you about that. 
Thanks for both of your descriptions of these programs that are being implemented in Mexico, Guatemala, and India. I'd like to take a step back. Antonio, you mentioned that PepsiCo is at work in 200 countries. The company's market cap is up to $229 billion. It's the world's second largest food and beverage company. The foundation, PepsiCo Foundation, invested $62 million as of the last impact report in the United States and around the world. These products that you described, Mexico, Guatemala, and India, to address malnutrition among children there, what is PepsiCo's interest? Why is PepsiCo implementing these programs? How do these programs relate to PepsiCo Foundation and the broader mission of the company? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, Caitlin. As you said, we have a very large corporation, and this is part of a larger strategic end-to-end transformation that has been taking place in the company for a few years. The strategy goes under the name of PepsiCo Positive. And it's a strategy that really guides all of our decisions, commercial and otherwise, and has at the center sustainability and how we create value and inspire positive changes for people and the planet and including our ambition closer to the matter that we are discussing today, which is stated into our strategy to increase nutritious food access to tens of millions of people. I think our stated goal for 2030 is 50 at this point, but likely to evolve. And so, first of all, the strategy has three main pillars. One, which is agriculture, where we're trying to expand regenerative agricultural practices across the 7 million acres from which we source our top quality crops. The other one is a transparent supply chain uh, where we're dealing with the issue of uh, carbon emissions and waste and plastic, etc. And the third one, which is especially very important for us in R&D, is positive choices, which is a commitment of the company to, number one, make our portfolio progressively more permissible by reducing nutrient to limits, which is an effort that has been going on for quite some time. But it will be important perhaps to your listeners, to the people that are listening to the podcast, that we have just upped a couple of our goals in this space by aligning our sodium reductions to WHO and FDA requirements And with a lot of thinking in the directions that we have already explored, making this portfolio of products consumed by a large number of people every day more and more nutritionally valuable. And there is a whole part of our strategy that aims at increasing the content of positive ingredients in our products, both large brands that are already on the market, as well as creation of newer, better for you brands. Now, within positive choices, obviously, is also, as I said, the ambition of increasing nutrition, food access to millions of people. And we do a lot of that work in collaboration with the PepsiCo Foundation, as you mentioned, multiple access there as as well. And addressing mild to moderate malnutrition is one of those access. And hopefully we have given to your listeners a good idea of how a large corporation can contribute in the, again, communities in which we operate to solve a problem that is very large. Some of your listeners will, having listened to the numbers that we mentioned, will think this is a drop in the ocean. But we're trying to also show leadership of how a private enterprise can 
contribute in a progressively larger way to lessening a little bit this problem around the world. Thank you, Antonio. When it comes to addressing malnutrition, the moderate acute malnutrition that RUSF is helping to reduce, do you have plans to scale up? It sounds like you're planning to continue your operations in Guatemala and Mexico to scale up, you said, actually in other countries in Southeast Asia. In light of increasing rates of malnutrition and in light of the increasing costs of delivering emergency assistance due to higher costs of grains, higher costs of energy, etc.? Or are you simply showing proof of concept that a company can have impact when partnering with local organizations and working with families to reduce malnutrition among children in certain communities? It's a great question, Caitlin. The short answer is a little bit of both. When we move around our territories, we try to do it in a way that it makes an impact. And uh, through a lot of consultation with global and local experts and the decision to move from South America to Southeast Asia was informed by both the idea that we have the know-how to bring solutions that are Efficacious, as you've heard from the numbers that Marianne mentioned in terms of how we have been able to help these kids that have been part of our programs. But we're also trying to learn as we go, because you also heard that we couldn't take willy-nilly the solution that we had developed in South America and apply it. So it, it does require work. It does require preparation. There is a logistic challenge that is always present when we move from a country to another. I'll give you, so you heard Marianne saying that this panjiri is prepared fresh, basically, before being delivered. So imagine we had to set up for food safety purposes a central kitchen that is assisting the delivery of the solution to the thousand kids that we have now in Pune. And now that model works there as we move to another country. Will it work or will it have to modify? So Again, a little bit of both is to show that private corporation can contribute reliably to this program. And then us experimenting on how much more can we expand our reach of these interventions that are high touch. They're not easy to put in place. How much more can we do without losing the size of the impact that we're having right now? Antonio, thank you very much for noting that across the company, Pepsi, it sounds like plans to align some of its formulations with WHO recommendations, for example, with regard to sodium content. So we've been talking about the impacts of these two programs on severe moderate acute malnutrition. PepsiCo products, PepsiCo operating in 200 countries, PepsiCo products enjoyed and loved by people across the world, probably by billions of people every day. And also linked to some forms of malnutrition, non-communicable diseases, obesity, diabetes, other non-communicable diseases. Is there anything else you can share with us about, Marianne, as you framed it, the portfolio transformation journey of the company with regard to not only addressing these forms of moderate acute malnutrition, but these other forms of malnutrition linked to diets? Yeah, happy to. We have been working on portfolio transformation on our product portfolio now for more than 15 years. And as Antonio alluded to, it falls under this umbrella of PEP positive initiatives. But within that, we have our positive choices, let's say, program, which really is focused on 
initially nutrients to limit across our portfolio, added sugars, sodium, saturated fat, as an example, trans fatty acids. And at the time we set for ourselves what we considered very challenging targets to move our portfolio to reduce these nutrients of concern. So essentially for beverages, as an example, we set a goal to be achieved by 2025 that 67% of our beverage portfolio volume globally would have less than 100 calories from added sugars per serving. And then similarly with sodium, 75% of our portfolio had to not exceed 1.3 milligrams per calorie of sodium per product. And similarly with saturated fat, 75% not to exceed 10% intake from saturated fatty acids in any of the products globally. And so having these targets allowed us then to really start to work on our portfolio, transforming it, reducing those nutrients to limit. There's three ways really which we achieve these goals. We reduce or reformulate in our existing legacy products to improve them for consumers so that consumers don't necessarily have to change their habits. They can continue to enjoy the products they love, but with much less concern about the nutrient composition. And then we innovate, of course, new products all the time, really trying to achieve a much better nutrition status than would have been possible in the past. And we are very active with M&A activity over the last 10 years to really help us transform our capability in applications that we may not have had prior. And so we're coming up on our 2025 deadline. We are very successful in achieving these goals. We've already achieved the saturated fat goal, in fact, two years ahead of time. We are going to hit our sodium deadline on time. And as Antonio already mentioned, not only are we going to achieve that, but we've really increased, I say, the challenge on the organization now with new sodium commitments around the WHO standards. And similarly with added sugars, we're on track for our 2025 delivery. So we have been very, very active. I think the most exciting thing, however, Caitlin, to mention is that having reduced all of these negatives to such an extent, we are actually in a position recently with a lot of our portfolio where we could reliably include positive nutrition, which can have a much greater impact on public health. And so that allowed us to recently announce a goal and a commitment to increase our servings of diverse ingredients across our portfolio. By 2030, we're going to add more than 130 million servings of whole grain, as an example, in the U.S. diet by that time. So it's a really nice example of progression over this time, not only reducing nutrients of concern, but also flipping to ensure that we're addressing the needs of the population at the same time. Thank you for that very useful description, Marianne. Antonio, anything you'd like to add? No, I just, I was listening. I mean, every time I listen to Marianne describing these goals, I I am in awe with the way we set these goals for us. But I'm also very self-aware that we make it sound easy. It's not easy. So I want to pay 
due credit to the thousands of people in our R&D organization that work day and night to resolve technically some of the challenges that we bring about when we ask the organization to go to the next level. This might seem very trivial to people that are really not into the weeds of how we bring products to the marketplace, but it takes a village and enormous deep knowledge to achieve some of these goals. And as a relative newcomer to the food and beverage industry, which I joined five years ago, I'm still amazed by the technical know-how that goes into achieving some of these goals. So it seems trivial at the surface. It's not. And also, I wanted to double down on the boldness of the decision that we just made. Because, I mean, it's very easy to say, okay, we'll um, isolate these efforts in uh, small new brands that we can go in and out easily. They don't have a material impact on the finances of the company. But the commitment of the leadership of the company to retrofit this idea on our big brands, which if you make a mess, you leave a lot of money on the table if you don't match the consumer expectation is very large, should give your listeners a sense of how serious PepsiCo is about the portfolio transformation journey within the context of being primarily a convenience food and beverage company, but within that role in the food and beverage industry, being very serious about how we think about our impact on public health. Well, thank you. Dr. Antonio Tatarani, Dr. Marianne O'Shea, thank you for this wide-ranging conversation about two specific programs of PepsiCo Foundation aiming to address malnutrition in Mexico, Guatemala, and in India, and also about the efforts of the foundation broadly and the company broadly to address malnutrition around the world through your daily operations. So this is a very, very interesting conversation, very important conversation. Grateful for your time. Any final comments from either of you? Thank you, Caitlin, for giving us the forum to share these wonderful projects that I think you can tell we're very proud of. Thank you, Caitlin. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 